Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz along with my co-host Justin Ritchie. How's it going Seth? It's been a little while since we've put out an episode but we've been up to quite a bit in that time off. What have you been up to Seth? Well I got a new microphone. I have taken another trip to Atlanta and yesterday I ate some sushi at a really good sushi restaurant. Wow what have I been up to? So I went to New York for New Year's. Went to Times Square. It was absolutely insane. Apparently, you can't bring backpacks or bottles to Times Square. Yeah, I heard about that. Tell me more. Yeah, I brought a backpack with bottles in it to Times Square. And um, so my friends and I had to empty the bottles uh, rapidly into our stomachs. And then we had to take the backpack. And through a period of negotiating for about 20 minutes with police officers, they told me, you know, I can't stuff it in my coat because I'd look pregnant and I can't throw in a bush because it'd be a suspicious package. And, you know, I talked to these police officers and they, you know, I'm the only person wandering around on the sidewalk because everyone else is in a security barricade. Eventually, I went over, shoved the backpack into a trash can, covered it with trash, it was all McDonald's wrappers, and then snuck back in somehow, got shoved up against the side of the barricade, and didn't even see the ball drop. So that's my Times Square experience. You didn't even see the ball drop. Didn't now, even see did, the ball drop, yeah. Now in these barricades, do they give you some kind of restroom options or food or anything like that? There are restroom options, and it involves you uh, relieving yourself into the crowd of people. So <laughs> that's not uh, necessarily a valid option. But I've heard that some people just wear Depends, adult diapers all the way, I suppose. <laughs> There's no food there either. My friends and I, we got there at 10 p.m., fortunately so only two hours before the madness happened but some people get out there at like two three o'clock and so they're there with no way to go to the bathroom no options for food and they're just stuck wow do they give you uh, streamers or some kind of party favors to play with i saw a lot of those blow up things there i, I think that only happens if you're part of the group that gets there at 8 a.m in the morning and gets like right up next to the ball that sounds like quite an experience. <laughs> Essentially, what I figured out is that everybody in New York throws the Times Square party simply to make sure that all of the tourists in New York go to one place for one night, and then the rest of the city can celebrate the beginning of the new year themselves. Well, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. How is it being back in British Columbia? Is school starting up again? Yep, uh, classes starting back at UBC. I'm taking a really good class this semester from sustainability legend Bill Rees. 
and he's one of the guys who uh, pioneered alternatives to GDP, and he also uh, developed the concept of the ecological footprint, which is very important when thinking about sustainability and sustainability for society. Um, so he is retiring next fall, so I'm really fortunate to be on in his class, and so very excited to get some uh, insights on uh, global resource depletion and other aspects of our ecological crisis. I'm sure we're going to get some audio from him as well later on. Yeah, in the I think so. Great. So today we're speaking with Jane Brocks, author of Brilliant, The Evolution of Artificial Light. Uh, definitely one of the best books I read last year. It really blew me away, the level of detail and uh, just the lives that people lived before artificial light. And we often think about electricity and electricity consumption, and we think of it in terms of all the gadgets and computers that we run. But in reality, electricity developed just to supply light. And that simple change in itself did so much for humanity and changed so much about our psychology and the way that we live. Yeah, and prior to electricity, people had to burn animal fat, and they spent an incredible amount of time and energy getting that animal fat to burn. Yeah, so this is going to be a great interview. We have some excerpts that Jane actually read from her book, which will be exciting to listen to. We will catch you on the other side. to the Extra Environmentalist Podcast. We're talking today with author Jane Brocks. Jane, you're a writer of numerous essays, winner of the New England Book Award for Nonfiction, and author of four books, most recently of which is Brilliant, The Evolution of Artificial Light. And we'll be talking about the development of artificial light today. Is there anything we can add to your bio? Uh, any hobbies that may or may not be related to your writing? Well, I'm a big gardener. How does oh. that sound? Yeah. That makes sense because your your previous books were quite a bit on uh, on rural life and, and farming and such. Right. I grew up on a produce farm in Massachusetts, so it always feels like a natural thing to be outside in the garden. All right. What was it that initially hooked your interest in telling the story of artificial light? Well, I really had thought, because my previous books were about farming, and I had thought that I would write a book on rural electrification, because a lot of my neighbors and even my father had grown up without electricity on the farm, and had talked about what a great change it had been from using kerosene lamps to going to electricity. It sort of changed their lives overnight. So I thought that, and it wasn't really a well-known topic, so I thought that would be an interesting thing to write about. And as I started to research the backstory for the book, it seemed like I just um, dropped through the floor. I mean, I was astonished at all the things I was uncovering about light and and the development of light. And... um, Everybody I talked to, most people didn't know anything about that either or had never even thought about it. So I thought, well, it would be more 
I, th- I thought it would reach more people if I put the story of rural electrification within that larger story of light. I went all the way back to the cave of Lascaux to start the story. And so we deal with a, a lot of environmental and alternative economic issues on our show. And when I was reading through your book, it was really refreshing as all the details you provide talk about the hardships faced by members of society and explains in detail why our modern electric grid consumes so much energy and emits so many greenhouse gases. So what we want to do in our discussion today is paint a clear picture of how the artificial light uh, we take for granted now has only been so abundant, uh, become so abundant over uh, such a short period of time and how difficult life was before it. So let's start out by talking about some of these hardships perhaps in, in ancient times, say life on city streets before artificial light? Lighting, both for urban and rural people, before the 19th century was always a very hard one. I mean, most poor people, and most of the world was poor, couldn't afford light. Whatever light they had was from some kind of local oil or, or vegetable or animal um, fat, so that, for instance, people in the northern climates might have used sheep fat people in the Mediterranean would have used olive oil. But it was always always a decision of whether it, it, all fuel could also be used for fu- food. So people often had to make a choice of whether they would see at night or eat the fat. In fact, sometimes lighthouse keepers, when they didn't get their rations, had to eat their um, candles. So the streets of the cities didn't have any kind of regulated street lighting system, so almost all the streets would be dark. The only light would have been from the uh, watch who would carry night watch who would carry torches looking for people who are abroad in the night in fact in order to keep the streets however safe they could most authorities in cities would order everybody into their houses after dark and in some places for instance in paris at certain times people were actually locked into their homes after dark so they couldn't go outside and Within their houses, often there was a curfew, um, which means cover the fire in French, curfew from the old French cover fire, because people were also ordered to put out their uh, cooking fires after dinner, because the authorities were, of course, afraid of conflagration, which was a great danger in medieval societies, because once a fire started, it would easily spread through the whole city. So most people after dark simply lived in the dark and went to bed very soon after the sun went down. So you can imagine how that would have been in the winter, say, in a northern city when it got dark at 4.30 or 5. So. Yeah, it would, it, would, it would be very, very depressing to have to go to sleep every day at 4 o'clock. How have the extra hours in the day changed humanity and our sleep patterns, and how have we used those extra hours of uh, light in, in our lives. Right. Well, the, the um, increase in um, extra hours really began in the 19th century very slowly with gaslight and then, of course, with electricity. And as electricity became more widespread and cheaper, then, you know, lights in factories were able to um, be on 24 hours a day so that, in fact, you know, um, workers could work three shifts in the factories. That wasn't common really until light became very cheap and efficient and safe within those factories. So you can now work 24 hours a day, but also uh, light in the evening, even our house lights, affects our circadian rhythm. 
so that, in fact, um, we don't sort of settle down during the evening into a period of quiet before going to bed, and that disrupts our sleep and, and interrupts our sleep. But one of the very interesting things I also found out about was it may be that our idea of eight hours of continuous sleep might even be a modern idea tied to modern society because, um, you know, we have a very regimented, regimented clock time for the way we live. We sleep, we work, we recreate. But in the Middle Ages, there's a historian who found these evidence that people actually every night had divided sleep, in which they would go to bed early, of course. Um, they It was dark, the lights were out, they had nothing to do, so they would go to bed early. And then they would um, experience a period of wakefulness in the middle of the night, one, two, three o'clock in the morning. And this wasn't anxious for them, it was just sort of a restful moment of sleep, which they might have valued because, um, say, a medieval peasant had very little time to themselves when they weren't exhausted. And this might have been some very valued time in their life. And then they would fall back asleep until sunrise. So um, it's interesting to think that even the patterns of sleep we imagine to be natural may in fact not be that way at all. You're listening to Jane Brocks, author of Brilliant, The Evolution of Artificial Light on The Extra Environmentalist. So is it possible to revert back to uh, experiencing a second sleep? Well, actually, there have been experiments done where they took people and put them in an isolated situation, and people seemed to naturally fall back into that kind of divided sleep once all the other sort of guiding forces in their life were taken away. It may be possible. I'm not sure for how many of us that is possible. But it actually, for myself, it made me think about, well, if I wake up in the middle of the night, maybe I shouldn't get anxious about it or worry about it. Just sit back and relax and wait to go back to bed. Because that, in fact, may be a vestige of that natural sleep pattern. Anyway, it's comforting to me. I often wake up in the middle of the night. Well, I was just going to say, a lot of people take medication to stay asleep the whole night. And it's a lot, a lot different than uh, what people probably used to deal with all the time. But, of course, that ties into sort of the demands of our day. Because, in fact, you know, people start worrying, well, if I'm not up at 7 and ready for work at 8, you know, I suppose, you know, if it was winter in the Middle Ages and you were awake for a period in the night, I, I don't think you were so key to getting up at a precise time. Do you know what I mean? So, in fact, the whole pattern of day, the whole pattern of human sleep was much more attuned to the natural patterns of light and dark, too. Um, so, speaking speaking of uh, isolation, the experiments of uh, Michel Sifra, I believe mm-hmm. is, is how he'd pronounce his name uh, in the French-Italian Alps. Right. So, why did he undertake these experiments, and what did he find out about notions of time? Right. Well, he was interested, basically, in experimenting with time. This was in the early 1960s, and he went down um, into a cave, and he had no sense of time once he was in the cave because he was cut off from all kinds of light. He was also cut off from communication except by telephone with people on the surface of the earth. 
when they, he talked to people on the surface of the, of the earth, they would give him no clues at all as to what time it was. He was interested in seeing what kind of um, cycle of sleep that he ended up experiencing underground. The people on the surface would take note of his sleep cycles, which he recorded, and they um, remained very near the a 24 and a half sleep cycle. Um, which meant his internal clock hadn't shifted. But Seifer's conscious understanding of time had shifted very much. He says himself, I underestimated by almost half the length of my working day, waking hours. A day that I estimated at seven hours actually lasted on average 14 hours and 40 minutes. This is, that's what Seifer wow. said after he um, experienced. It was a clue that our circadian rhythm was able to withstand periodic absences of, in light, of light. In the dark, our circadian rhythm actually remained the same. I mean, it was interesting also, Seifer um, lost all sense of duration of time, which um, I thought to be very interesting. He um, couldn't tell. At sometimes he was confused as if something, he didn't know whether something that had happened to him five minutes ago had happened five minutes ago or five hours ago. He was absolutely had no sense of duration. Because of light, he couldn't tell them? Because he was in the dark. And he was also isolated, isolated from his natural daily habits as well. But in part, I think it was because he was in the dark. It also... I mean, being in the dark for that long, he was in the dark, I think, for um, something like 60 days. He, of course, became very anxious at times and very fearful at times. So I, I think his psychological state of mind was, was also temporarily compromised during that experience as well. That's an interesting point about the psychological frame of mind. People are often afraid of the dark and afraid of the things that happen in the dark. Has the introduction of artificial light helped to ease that fear or made it greater? That's kind of an interesting question and one that I actually didn't find an answer to. It's one I keep wondering about, whether our fear of the dark is the same experiences someone's fear of the dark, say, in the Middle Ages. Of course, in the Middle Ages, there was a lot to be fearful of at night, especially in urban areas, because there were a lot of thieves and um, what they would call footpads out at night. People, of course, forbidden to walk in the streets. It was actually quite dangerous to be abroad at night. I, I'm imagining, say, for instance, somebody experiencing night in a rural setting um, in the Middle Ages might not be fearful, but might be much more attuned to the natural cycles of the seasons and the natural course of day and night and not be afraid of the dark. In modern society, I think we've been so accustomed to an, an enormous amount of illumination at night that the darkness, in fact, feels very foreign to us. I don't think in the Middle Ages darkness ever felt foreign to people. It was just something they experienced every day. But I think for many people, most of us live in an urban area, and for many of us who do experience extreme dark somewhere, it's an extraordinary experience, which may make us full of wonder at times, but also make us more anxious and fearful than someone who experienced very dark nights all the time. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I think it's possible for people, for people living now, born nowadays, to 
really never experienced total darkness or really never experienced time without light. You know, even when they're sleeping, they can keep the lights on. Correct. And I mean, my house, for instance, I live in the middle of a town in Maine. My house is never dark. There's a streetlight right outside of my house. I can walk around my house at three in the morning without turning any lights on. But I've also lived in very, very dark places. So I have seen actually, you know, an extremely brilliant night sky. And I've lived in places where, you know, if I didn't have a light on, I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. It's such a different way of being in the world after dark. It's almost hard to express that difference. And I, right now, in the United States, most people where they live cannot see the Milky Way, even on the um, darkest night, because there's so much light pollution. That's true for most of the urbanized world. I used to work at a research institute in the Pisgah National Forest in western North Carolina, and a lot of the kids that came for the camp there had come from urban areas, and the thing that always shocked them was just the pitch blackness that hit when there was no light out in that forest, and you could just see the stars forever because it was an astronomy camp, and so just the view you had of the stars was absolutely incredible. What was their reaction then? It was absolutely one of wonder, and even though it was an an astronomy camp they would come in and sit all day and you know learn about astronomy and astrophysics in the camp but then what they really valued was going outside at night and looking up at the stars and it was just one of absolute wonder because they'd never seen anything like it oh that's a great story it's true i mean there's a kind of funny story about um the lights going out in southern california after an earthquake and people calling radio stations wondering what this shimmering cloud in the night sky was when in fact it was the milky way (laughs) which they had never seen in their lives because because, they had never seen a sky that wasn't sort of light purple with just a handful of stars and i would wonder how artificial light has changed our relationship to the stars uh, and astronomy (laughs) so did you find any insights there you know the astronomers were the first to sort of um, remark about light pollution and try to do something about it. The creation of the International Dark Sky Association was founded by a couple of astronomers. And that's because light pollution, you know, by the 1960s had begun to compromise many of the great telescopes out in Southern California, for instance. It has compromised the ability of scientists to do their work in those laboratories, in those um at those telescopes, but it also, um, I think it's a, we just don't think about the night sky or wonder about it on a day-to-day basis in, in the way that people once did. I mean, it was a rare and wonderful experience for them to see the sky. Now, there's been part of the, an offshoot of the International Dark Sky Association is they're trying to form these sort of sacred dark sky places throughout the world where there won't be any lights. It's almost as if now the dark sky has to be preserved like everything else, like any other kind of wilderness, whereas, you know, even 150 years ago, it would have been very common everywhere. It's not a commonality. Most people just can't walk out their back door and look up at a night sky and see a million stars. It's interesting. In your book, you wrote about how in the countryside, it was it was considered um, a disadvantage to be without electricity, but now it seems that the disadvantage is for the people with the lights. So there's been kind of a, a reversal in that, in that you can see the night sky now from the countryside, but you can't really see the night sky 
in the city. So that's kind of been a little reversal in the in the class, you know, system there. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting the way um, electricity really quickly became a sign of modernity. For instance, the first interconnected electric system really only provided lights to houses. But very soon after, within a couple of decades, with those lights also came washers, dryers, and refrigerators. And the inside of the modern home became vastly different in a home that was electrified versus a home that wasn't. So because the cities were electrified first and many decades before the American countryside, many American farms felt at a great disadvantage because they didn't have any electricity. And it made a big difference to farm families who were dependent, you know, who had to haul water, wash everything by hand, milk by hand, had no way to keep the milk cool in hot weather other than putting it in a brook or, um, you know, lowering it down a well. So when electricity came, it really did seem like a miracle. And, and, you know, I think about it now, and I, I think much of the challenge we have now, not only with light but all of our sort of electrical appliances, is to think about technology, what technology means to us, and what do we need, perhaps, versus what we might simply desire. If you can speak a little bit on that for a second in your thoughts on, on technology and, and how it meets our needs or versus our desires. Right, right. Well, light seems to be a perfect example because our world really is overlit, and we need far less light than we have than we use to feel safe at night. Um, we need far less light than we use to safely illuminate our streets and our homes. But it just seems part of it is a lack of good design, that a lot of the light gets wasted because it shines up into the night sky or it doesn't do any use. But part of it is just, I think, we become accustomed to a certain amount of light, and then we become accustomed to even more light, and to use less light feels as if we were in some kind of impoverished state. I mean, it's been very interesting for me. I've been trying to use less light inside my home. I don't use any light outside my house, and I've tried to use less light inside my home. And it really makes a huge psychological difference um, to have only the room I'm living in lit versus, for instance, have a lamp on in every room downstairs. You know, I try to think back to the 19th century where there was a great quote by some man explaining electricity in the early 20th century, and he said, what sufficed for people in the gaslight era would now not be enough for us. Anything less seems as if we're cast back into olden times or something like that. Light, I think, carries with it just the symbol of prosperity. It carries with it a symbol of ease and modern life. And what you give up, I think, with so much light is not only the night sky, but you give up a sense of um, sort of the interplay of light and shadow, even within our own homes and our own streets. I mean, it's a very different effect of having both light and dark in the world versus having an absolutely illuminated night. So was there anything that you came across during the research for the book that really changed your behavior. You spoke a little bit about how you changed the way you light the inside and outside of your house. Was there anything else? Well, I think I just, I came to appreciate the way in which 
our life is so easeful. I, I came to appreciate how we really don't have to think about so many things in our life versus um, what people had to deal with even a hundred years ago in terms of we flick a switch for everything. I flick a switch for heat. I flick a switch to cook. I flick a switch to wash and dry my clothes. I haven't gone back to, for instance, heating my house with wood, or I haven't gone back to washing my clothes by hand. I think writing the book has given me a greater appreciation for what our modern world gives us and what the technology of the time gives us. But I've also sort of realized that as a human being, maybe the best thing I could do is think about the decisions I make regarding technology and ask myself, do I need this or do I want this? What will this help me with or will it be detrimental? I think about that in terms of I... um, have a cell phone, but I only use it for emergencies and things like that. I don't, I don't need a cell phone for anything other than that. So I only use it if, you know, I'm traveling on the road and I keep it with me in case I break down or something like that. So I guess it's made me think about perhaps not the things I have in my house now, but going forward, how to make decisions about technology because we have so much technology innovation and technology coming at us all the time and it's easy to just keep buying into new technology instead of asking myself say um, will this help me is this a, think of technology as a tool is this a tool I need for my life or will it just sort of make life more distracted why do you think we've gone in such a particular direction with technology just spinning out from where utility companies used to be light companies and just uh, okay. brought about light and now we're you know have iPads and, and fancy everything and it's almost like we're just accumulating technology simply to have the new features and haven't really thought about that. Do you think that in any way the shift of going from the light companies to the electric utility has anything to do with that or, or has has that shift been influenced by our desire to have all of these gadgets? It's kind of interesting. I think it might be um, something like a Mobius strip in that one thing feeds another. I mean, I think electricity certainly began an age of technological innovations because of all the things that electricity made possible. And I think the advent of electricity seems to coincide with the advent of an uptick in advertising and consumerism. And, I, I, you know, it's hard to know whether, you know, what came first, people's demand for something or the decision by some company to create a market for something. I don't know. I think they're inextricably tied together. But it all seems to be, you know, the increase in consumerism, the increase in advertising, the increase in electrical connection, all seem to be sort of riding on the same wave and bringing us more and more and more and more. And I think, you know, it's a great challenge, I think, for ourselves as humans to live in a world where everything is so, so many things are possible and so much technology is available because it also requires that we as thinking people make decisions that will help our lives and not harm them. In that way, I just think about making decisions about, you know, crowding our lives with noise or crowding our lives with busyness. That's all fine and good, but it also then shifts us away from, say, 
uh, more contemplative hours might bring us, what less noise, what less busyness, what less light might also bring us. So I think that oftentimes we think of technology as a blessing. It often is, but it also has its consequences. And I think it's our responsibility as individuals to think about those consequences as we make our decisions. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist. The blackout of 1965, which affected the northeastern United States and parts of Canada. At the time of the breakdown, there was no apparent reason for the outage. No storm, no high winds or lightning, no trees touching high-tension wires, and the cause would not be known for days. In each power plant, engineers and technicians were left to wonder whether something in their own system had triggered the shutdown while people in the countryside, accustomed to occasional local outages, even in good weather, naturally thought that maybe a car had hit a pole somewhere down the road. In the cities, there were vague notions of sabotage. The Chinese, a housewife on New York's east side, thought when she saw New York fade from her window, and then was a little ashamed. And through the minds of two knowledgeable newspapermen flashed the same thought about, at about the same time as they were to discover later. Both thought the anti-Vietnam demonstrators had pulled something off. Some said it was an earthquake, others recalled extraordinary times. I could see the New York skyline from my window, remarked the woman from Brooklyn. All of a sudden it's dark, dead kind of. The last time was in the war, it was dark about the same way. In New York City, the world's most concentrated electric market, 800,000 people were trapped in subways, countless others were in elevators, like hamsters in their cages, a New York Times reporter would say, or in offices high up in skyscrapers. Those riding on escalators glided down more and more slowly until at last they were scarcely moving at all. Not everyone risked descending to the street by way of the darkened stairwells. More than 500 people would spend the night in the 48-story skyscraper that housed the offices of Life magazine, and an emergency medical center would be set up in the lobby. Those already in their cars and on their way home had limited fuel, since gas pumps needed electricity to run. All the stoplights failed, and although some citizens tried to direct traffic and policemen set flares in the roads at dangerous forks and intersections to help drivers negotiate their way, most of the city was quickly snarled and gridlocked. Some native New Yorkers walked across the bridges, flashlights and transistors in hand for the first time in their lives. Others caught rides by hooking onto the back bumpers of crowded buses. Cabbies hiked up their fares. A.M. Rosenthal wrote, as usual, New Yorkers helped gouge themselves. They stood in the roadway, flagged down taxis, and shouted, $30 to Brooklyn, $10 to the village. It would be said at that night that it was easier to cross the Atlantic to Cairo than to get to Stamford, Connecticut from the city. The more efficient the technology, the more catastrophic its destruction when it collapses, observes Wolfgang Schivelbusch. This was a given. And although utility executives and engineers always acknowledged that a widespread failure of the grid could occur, 
few believed that it would, and they'd made no contingency plans for an extensive cascading failure. Their confidence had fostered a sense of complacency. Out of 150 hospitals in New York City, fewer than half had adequate backup power. Doctors had to perform emergency surgeries by flashlight, and five babies were born by candlelight at St. Francis Hospital. Did early utility companies think that households would find a need for all of these appliances? Well, it's kind of interesting. They did not. Of course, you know, there was a huge new market to begin with. They concentrated on commercial and industrial customers that for many reasons. For one thing, the commercial industrial customers would have sort of been a larger account to begin with, but also say industrial customers would have been concentrated in one area of a city so that the infrastructure to bring electricity to them would have been the most economical to build. In the beginning, the only houses that were wired for electricity would have been the very wealthy. Electric light was considered a luxury rather than a necessity. It's only in the 20th century when Westinghouse actually saw the advantage of bringing electricity to households that housewives would in fact not love light so much as irons. Irons were really the first thing that many people, once they were connected up with electricity, irons were the first sort of appliance that housewives would want. Your description of sad irons in the book was extremely horrifying. I can't believe that people actually had to, you know, lift these heavy things. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the description of sad irons. Right. They were these very uh, heavy cast iron objects, you know, shaped like a modern iron, but they'd be four, five, seven pounds. You'd have to heat them on a stove or whatever gas stove. Then you'd have to test them out. I think you had to wax them with these wax, and then, you know, you'd have to have four or five of these going at a time, and as one cooled down, you'd have to put it back on the fire and take the next one and use it to iron some clothes and then put it back on the fire to heat up again. But also, of course, something like that would also have acquired soot from the wood stove, so you'd have to be careful not to get soot on your clothes. You would have to have a fire going even in the heat of summer to do your ironing. And, of course, it was a very different society than the one we have now where cottons, in fact, were most fabrics would have been natural fabrics. They would have been very wrinkled because they wouldn't have gone through a dryer. So there was much more ironing to do in the first place than we currently do today. It was an all-day chore. You know, uh, women basically spent one day a week doing the wash and another day of the week doing the ironing. So that was two days of a week that was devoted entirely to the household clothes. I can see that class relationships were very different with the uh, advent of artificial light. You wrote in your book that as people stayed up late, rising late became a feature of the wealthy. Could you talk a little bit more about the class differentiation that electric light brought? Well, it was kind of interesting because, for instance, in the Middle Ages, the only people who had a lot of light would have been the very small class of very wealthy people. The court and the royalty, for instance, would have lots of light. With that light would have been sort of a a nightlife, which would have extended 
way late into the night so the courtiers would stay up late and then rise late and so rising late became a sign of prestige in a certain way so that as more and more light came into the middle class neighborhoods then they too participated in nightlife would end up staying up later and rising later in the morning that was sort of a change in the daily patterns of human sleep in that way. But also, you could tell right away from the outside which houses were more prosperous because they were more brightly lit. And this was true even in the electric age where the wealthier neighborhoods would be electrified first and a house with electric lights in it, the the windows would be entirely illuminated. The house would be very bright, whereas a house with only kerosene lamps or candlelight would have a very small light flickering through the house. I mean, it's kind of interesting. You can see that in rural Maine even now when the power goes out in the rural places, which happens quite frequently in winter. People with generators can have their house fully illuminated with electricity, and people without generators, you go by their house and they just have a small little flicker of a light in the kitchen window. So it looks very much how it must have looked back in the 19th century for neighborhoods where one neighborhood might be lit with electric lights, another neighborhood might be lit lit with gas lights, and even poorer neighborhoods might still be using oil lamps. And the light was very different not only within the house, but in urban areas it would also be very different on the streets because the electrically lit neighborhoods would be brilliant whereas the gaslight would seem very... And, of course, that's all relative because in the gaslight era, before electricity, those gaslit neighborhoods would have seemed very bright and prosperous. But in comparison to electric lights, they in turn began to seem very dim. I I heard you talk about in one interview where people would turn on all the lights in their house and then walk away from their house and just look back at it and see all the lights lighting up their houses, and they would just marvel at that. People in the American countryside, when the lights finally came to the countryside, you think of the parsimonious American farmers, they would turn all the lights on and just drive away from their house and look back. listening to Jane Brocks, author of Brilliant, The Evolution of Artificial Light on The Extra Environmentalist. Besides cleaning the house and cooking meals, farm women canned fruits and vegetables, which meant hauling wood or coal for the fire and standing over a hot stove almost daily in high summer. When the peaches were ripe, the corn was also ripe and the beans and tomatoes, and they rotted quickly in the heat. But cooking and harvesting and canning were the least of it. I have always lived on a farm except for the first five years of my marriage, and I think I might almost as soon as have been in jail, because the work is so hard and is never done. The hardest thing is the washing, remarked one woman. Doing laundry not only required hauling and heating water, farm women soaked and scrubbed their entire family's clothes on a washboard in a zinc tub. I got up many a time at 3 o'clock in the morning when I had the family to wash clothes, one woman recalled. 
They heated more water for rinsing and wrung out all the clothes by hand or put them through a mangle or wringer before hanging them up to dry. By the time you got done washing, your back was broke, one woman remembered. I'll tell you of all the things in my life I will never forget. I will never forget how much my back hurt on wash days. One farmer observed, I'll never forget the day when he announced the electric was turned on. I waited till dark to do my chores. I had the barn all lit up like a Christmas tree. Oh, that seemed nice, especially the stable. You didn't have to look where you was going. The moment a house was supposed to be connected to the, to the electric lines was known as zero hour, and people would flip their switches on and off to make sure they didn't miss the instant of connection. And sometimes farm families kept their lights on all night long. That light in the kitchen came on, and that was the prettiest sight I ever saw. It was wonderful after all those years of oil lamps. I never expected to get it unless I went away from here. And it was the light the linemen remembered. Some of them wanted you to come and turn it on for them, one recalled. They was a little afraid, you know. They didn't know anything about it. So you go, there's nothing to it. Just turn the switch on and you've got it, see? And so I turned the light on, and oh my gosh, look at that. We've never had it that way. You can see all around the room. Another said, I've seen this happen. The lights come on hundreds of places, and it's an emotional situation you can't describe. Something happens, lightning strikes them, and they all at once are different. People cried, prayed, they cried, they swore. I mean, I think the thing that struck me most about the uh, rural electrification was how it came at a time when the countryside was really emptying of people because in the 1920 census was the first time in the United States where there were more people in urban and suburban areas than the rural countryside. So most American rural people felt in some respects that they were sort of being left behind the times. And I think the lack of electricity only exacerbated that because they would get magazines in the mail where they would see these modern housewives in the cities with all these conveniences and they felt that they just weren't part of the culture, that they were somehow apart from the ongoing American culture. It's kind of interesting to think about the world situation now because in fact a whole one-third of the world is still without electrical connections. In a global economy and in an interconnected world, the people in those areas also know that they are living an entirely different life, sort of parallel to the life that most people live in modern societies. And yet, when some of these rural areas had their own appliances and it changed the nature of the chores and, and the daily work, what did that do to the communities? Maybe we can extrapolate that out into what would you expect to happen to the communities in the third of the world that doesn't have electricity and maybe wants these appliances? Like anything else, it, it brings certain things and it takes other things away. I mean, once the communities became electrified, in a way, it connected people more with the modern world. It was easier, you know, and this had also to do with that at the same time, the roads were improving and automobiles were becoming more common. It made the distance between cities and countryside shorter. It gave the children opportunities. A lot of them chose to leave, and it might have sped up that decision for most people. But it also gave 
some farms in some areas, and, you know, not all farming communities are the same. It's very different to be farming in a poor southern region versus a prosperous northern region, perhaps, or a different prosperous southern region. It made it easier sometimes for farms to continue because um, the sons of farmers could see that they could have a modern life on the farm. The other thing it did, though, was it made it easier and more appealing for people in the cities and suburbs to move further out into the countryside. So it repopulated the countryside with people who weren't farmers. <laughs> and, you know, that also created a much more complex social situation. So it's kind of interesting to think that, like with any technology, it, it sort of brings things and takes other things away. It inevitably changes the very dramatically sort of the re- relationships all people have to place in time. But it was also true that once electricity came to the countryside, children in the countryside actually, their performances in school improved because it was easier for them to study at home at night. They had better light from under which to work. They could work longer at night. And that's actually an interesting phenomenon. There were places in Africa, there was a, um, I forget the country now, but where children will go to the airport and study under the airport lights and do their homework under the airport lights because they don't have adequate light in their village in which to do their homework. So, you know, there's this, to me, that's a wonderful symbol of their desire to sort of partake of the modern world by becoming educated but the systems within their villages don't yet allow them to do that. But it'll be interesting to see how light and energy develop for places beyond the grid now, that developments in solar energy and solar power, how there may be places that have all these advantages that don't need to be connected to the grid. They could have adequate light and adequate energy without, without the grid we have, the complex grid we have now. That Africa story is kind of like that one laptop per child initiative that's going on. They use the laptops for light instead of for actually computing, which is interesting. Let's let's shift gears for a second here. And uh, one thing that I learned about in your book was uh, whales, which is something I didn't expect from what I think is essentially a technology history book. Could you talk a bit about whaling and maybe give us some details about what life was like for a whaler and why they hunted and killed so many whales? Well, whale oil was really the first commercial oil, really until whale oil, the whale oil industry geared up. Most um, oils used were, as I said at the beginning of our talk, localized oils, you know, from the area, and people would make their, fashion their own lamps or, or dip their own candles. But with whale oil, there began to be an international trade in the oil. And it started with the, the, uh, the hunt for the right whale, which it got its name because it was the right whale to hunt. It had a high-quality oil. It was a fairly slow-moving whale, so it was easy to hunt. And it was at the beginning of the hunt, it was a fairly common whale in many parts of the ocean so that the whalers didn't have to go very far from shore to get their quarry. 
But as the whaling increased, the right whales became more scarce, and whalers had to make longer and longer voyages farther and farther from shore in order to get enough whale oil to make it worth their while. The right whale was hunted almost to extinction. While all kinds of whales were hunted, and whalers would often be happy with whatever whale they captured, most of the concentration after the right whale was depleted went towards hunting the sperm whale, which not only had a high-quality oil, they could also use the head matter in a sperm whale to make spermaceti candles, which were of great quality, were very expensive because of the quality and that they didn't stink like most whale oil, which of course would smell gamey, and it, they didn't smoke. They were, in fact, as high quality as beeswax candles, which were always sort of the paramount candle used by the churches and only the wealthy. But the sperm whale, you know, the, the voyages for the sperm whale might take three years, and they would go north to the Arctic to hunt the sperm whale, or they would go way down to the South Pacific to hunt the sperm whale. They would have these incredibly long voyages, horrible working conditions, of course. Um, they would be slaughtering the whale on the deck, you know, rendering the oil from the fat in these huge fires on the deck. It was dangerous. It was smoky. They got very little paid. If they came back to port with very little whale oil, every mariner got a certain percentage of the take. So if you were very low on the totem pole, you got almost no money for these years at sea. So, And of course, there were many ships who never returned. Ships might burn to the waterline because the fires in the tripods might go um, get out of control. So it was a dirty, stinking business. It supplied the world with, with their light. Um, Herman Melville, of course, in Moby Dick, talks a lot about the, the voyages of the, the whalers, and I was just going to try to find a a quote from Melville. Melville's Ishmael said of himself and his companions, this is the whalers, they think that at best our vocation amounts to a butchering sort of business, and that when actively engaged in therein we are surrounded by all matter of defilements. Butchers we are, that is true, but though the world scouts at us whale hunters, yet does it unwittingly pay us the profoundest homage, yea, and all abounding adoration. For almost all the tapers, lamps, and candles that burn round the globe burn as before so many shrines to our glory. It's very interesting also to think about um, the difference between gathering your own oil locally and then having this oil this very dirty business of butchering whales being very distanced from the light you used. You you never see on shore, none of that would be seen. And all you would do is go to the store and pick up your tapers or, or pick up your whale oil and all the dirt and grime happens offshore. So it's a, it, I think it's maybe the start of that distancing ourselves from the true consequences of, our, of the things we have around us. In speaking about whales, the world actually hit the peak extraction of whales quite a while ago. And so how did society adjust to the higher demand for whale oil and the lower supply for whale oil? And does this example hold any lessons for, say, modern energy problems that could center around peaking of the extraction of oil? 
Right. Now, that's an interesting question. Well, what was happening is whale oil was diminishing in the 19th century, but, you know, a lot of more co complex things were happening. There was the rise of gaslight, which began in 1901. The demand for whale oil, in fact, was diminishing. There was also the advent of the mineral oil, for instance, first camphene early in the 19th century, then kerosene in 1859. Kerosene was light, it was cheap, it's a petroleum product, um, so that it was much more attractive for use than whale oil. Some of the reasons whale oil, the demand for whale oil disappeared was that other things came in to take its place. But it's also true that the, large, uh, the largest fleet for whaling was in the American Northeast with the advent of the Civil War, which made... Uh, going out in the whaling ships a very complex thing because you could be captured by Confederate cruisers and that sort of thing. A lot of the whale ships tied up in ports for the duration of the war, and by the end of the war, the market had been so diminished that it wasn't worth the owner's time and money to refit the whale ships for going back out to sea. So a lot of things were happening to collapse the whale oil trade. You think of the end of peak oil, and I mean, I'm not an expert in this kind of thing, but I would say that, you know, we have at our disposal the chance to transform ourselves into a society that has no dependence on oil. I mean, with all the alternative energies, you know, I guess it's a question of having enough resources to make that transition quickly enough. My point of view, it can't come quickly enough. <laughs> So it's a matter of creating a market or making those greener technologies, I guess, more available and more economical for a wider range of people. We can close out by just uh, seeing if you have anything you'd like to leave us with. Oh, that's a tall order. Yeah, I it's guess, quite a broad. You know, I don't like to prescribe things to people, but I would say, if anything, I hope my book um, helps people to think about the beauties of darkness and shadows as well as the beauty of light, I guess that's what I would say. That was so a much. great way to sum it up. Thanks. All right, that wraps up our interview with Jane Brocks on her book, Brilliant. Seth, what were some of the highlights for you? I really liked how sleep changed with the invention of uh, electric light, how people started sleeping less. And I'd never even heard about second sleep before. That is, people waking up in the middle of the night and just kind of hanging out until they fell back asleep until morning. So that was a very interesting thing. I think I've experienced that once or twice when I've, when I've been camping but really not too often in my day-to-day -day life. What did you like about it, Justin? I really enjoyed the few pieces that she read for us, and she hit on the blackout of 1965, and I think that's a really interesting part of the book because it, it talks, we didn't get into it during the interview, but she talked a little bit about looting and uh, societal issues at the time when the electric grid went down, I think if we'd had a little bit more time, I would have liked to ask her about it. But one interesting 
quote that she had was uh, in the book by Wolfgang Sh- uh, Schivelbush. He said of the 1965 blackout, the more efficient the technology, the more catastrophic its destruction when it collapses. And I think that's really prescient because now we're, we're facing so many issues around the sustainability of our electric grid, the sustainability of a lot of the technological systems that support us. And they've been immensely helpful, these technological systems, in helping us accomplish incredible things as a species, things, you know, 100 years ago we maybe never even thought possible. If they can't maintain themselves into the future, it makes you wonder how we're going to survive that transition period in learning to deal without them. Now, can I ask you an important question here, Justin? Yes. How often do you use the word prescient in day-to-day word? Uh, At least once a day. You know, but that's because I'm the kind of person who says prescient. It's a great word. You should probably use it more. <laughs> I've read and hear a lot from James Howard Kunstler, and he talks about how uh, you know efficiency leaves you with no fat in the system. And so what it means is that, sure, things become more and more efficient, but if you lose one of those support structures for a particular system or supply chain, the issue is that it's the only structure in the support system and so there's no redundancy i thought it was also interesting that how when she talked about people never seeing the milky way galaxy before and never actually seeing the stars close up because they live in a place that has extreme amounts of light pollution and they just never in their life have have been able to look up in the stars and see what's what's going on around them Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's a huge downside to artificial light is that it does serve to begin disconnecting us from the natural rhythms of the world. Right now is is the time in the experience of our species that we have to start facing more of the rhythms of the natural world and facing those limits to to growth and technological development. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how we can handle it. Man is the only organism with the need or the foresight to light his world that, yes that, that was written by by jane right no that was that was written by me oh that was written by you but she might have said it also <laughs> well whatever it sounded very wise and something an author would write so i i like it additionally a- another thing that we talked about was how these rural areas they started seeing these fancy appliances and magazines and everything and and one thing we didn't necessarily touch on exactly in the interview was that in the book, it talked about how horrible a woman's day was. Absolutely awful. You know, they had to do these these sad irons. And I think that, that Jane hit on uh, when she was reading just how they would have to wake up at 3 in the morning and, you know, start doing laundry, right? And so that's pretty miserable. So you can definitely understand why everyone wanted these appliances because they just made life so much easier. One interesting thing that was in Brilliant is that these these women, they would do their chores communally and they would do them in groups. And then as soon as everyone had their own appliance, the communal nature of everything went away. So while they gained the time and they gained the freedom, they also lost quite a bit in the sense that they had this connection between them and the other people in their household. Yeah, when you have a television and you have a light to read your book by and you have all these modern conveniences, your iPad and your your iPhone and all those things that you can, you know, light up right in your hand. You don't have to go talk to people. You don't have to go into a group to share uh, oral history stories and everything becomes a lot more individualized. Exactly. And so I think there's a happy medium where we can enjoy some 
and perhaps even most of the conveniences that modern appliances and electricity provides to us, but still recognize the importance of building community and developing these community activities and spaces. So perhaps we're headed towards a better future where instead of our community being based around chores, such as you know using a washboard to wash clothes, towards, I don't know, doing some kind of co-creative activities. I'm just yeah. rambling on here about it, but it's something to think about. We come back to again and again the point that our podcasts wouldn't even be possible without electricity and the electric light and the internet and all the modern conveniences that come along with that. Definitely. I mean, there's the fact that I'm sitting in in Vancouver, Canada, and you're sitting in North Carolina, and Jane Brocks was up in Maine, and we're all talking in real time, and I'm recording it, and you know, we have these microphones that in the past, the cost of which would have been prohibitive uh, for us to ever do some kind of moderate quality recording. And so there's a lot of people who, you know, are very primitivist and say, you know, technology has destroyed the world and destroyed humanity. We must destroy civilization. People like Derek Jensen and uh, John Zerzan. And I, I don't know if they'd necessarily use the word destroy civilization, but, you know, they're basically putting themselves along those lines that society needs to collapse. You take that a step forward, you have our audience, which is scattered across the world, and we have the music that we use, which is comes from people who we've never even seen before. All these things kind of come together and make our show possible, which would not ever be possible in a uh, non-lit world. So we live in a very exciting time and a very lucky time, probably one of the best times that humanity has ever seen and will ever see. So we should be thankful for those times. Definitely in terms of technology, the technological development and the technological abundance that we have now is certainly unprecedented. It's important to take every single day and just recognize that and uh, value it for what it is. And sure, there, there are some downsides. There's some negative aspects to that. When we spoke with Helena um, in our last episode, she was saying that a lot of people take on the guilt of the consumer society and we shouldn't necessarily have to do that simply because we came into this society we're marketed to we've had our consent manufactured and even though we need to be conscious and we need to recognize the impact that we're having on the world we can't necessarily let that drive us with a guilt trip so justin what's coming next down the line for us there's absolutely so much material that we have backed up that I have not had a chance to uh, put online yet for Seth and I to edit down. There's quite a few extra, extra environmentalists coming your direction. We've got a few more authors in the pipeline. Don't want to throw too many names out there yet just because I want to get everything underway before we uh, start promoting it but essentially we've got some great stuff coming. We're still going to put something out twice a month, whether that's uh, an extra uh, episode or a full interview, a full episode. And so just stay listening, stay tuned, and hope you're enjoying everything you're hearing. So Justin, what is the email address that people can use if they want to contact the Extra Environmentalist podcast? They can go to their Gmail, their Outlook, their web browser, whatever they use, and type in podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com and shoot us a message. What if they enjoy using their voice? What if they want to call us? Well, we have a system set up for their voice. Their voice can be passed along to us at their convenience at area code 919 701-XTRA. Find us on Facebook. Search for The Extra Environmentalist, or maybe you already know us and you've seen all of our Facebook messages from there. If that's the case, uh, send it out to a few of your friends. You know, Send your friends an email with a link to the podcast website, 
extraenvironmentalist.com. Recommend the podcast page to your friends to like. You know, we're up above 60 people liking us, which is uh, pretty solid considering we're only on our 10th episode. Seth and I are still fairly new at this. Every single episode, I think we're getting better and better. And that's all we can do is just push for continual improvement. But the only way we're going to do that is if we get feedback from you. So send us an email, give us a voice message, or send us a tweet. We're on Twitter at at xenvironmental. So you can follow us there. We haven't really been doing a lot with our Twitter presence, but that doesn't mean that we don't see anything you would send us. So shoot us an at reply, direct message, whatever, and let us know your thoughts on the show. Anyone you want us to interview, anything you want us to ask people, we're up for that. Even if it's a creative interview, we will do that interview with that person, even if we have to make it up ourselves. Definitely. And on that note, we (laughs) would like to uh, thank you for listening to another episode of The Extra Environmentalist and have a wonderful, wonderful wonderful day. This is the streets in the Middle Ages. Almost everyone gladly left the streets to the thieves, the scarring of rodents, and the lingering smells of the day, rotting food, old straw, and horses' sweat and dung. It has been said in describing the conditions of the age of dark streets that everybody signed his will and was prepared for death before he left his home. Women would have been particularly vulnerable in the night, and any women on the streets after nightfall save for midwives, would have been deemed to be prostitutes. People who had to travel hoped that their business would coincide with a clear night and a full moon, which thieves often avoided. The full moon also gave travelers enough light to see the outlines of the landscape and the road ahead. The eye functions differently at night than during the day. In the dark, people see with their retinal rods rather than their retinal cones, and complete adaptation to night vision takes a full hour. Even then, human sight is much less acute at night, and the eye can't distinguish color. On a night with no moon or heavy cloud cover, a lantern or torch lighting the way only directly ahead, travelers relied on their other senses. Most knew the country intimately by day, and such familiarity would have helped in the dark. Although they could not see landmarks, they could orient themselves by the feel of the road underfoot, the gravel crunching with each step or the give of soft sand, or the sound of the wind softening through the trees or rushing across an open field, or by church bells, falling water, or bleeding sheep, by the smell of hay or freshly cut wood. Anything light-colored helped, a pale horse, a sandy path, snow. Still, people had to negotiate the curfew chains or the logs that were sometimes placed across the streets as barriers. On even muddy roads, they fell off bridges and into canals and coal bins. They stumbled over cobbles, they tripped on wood piles and stones. In an age of scarce and rarely squandered light, any substantial illumination at night would have been imbued with great meaning. At times, it signaled crisis during conflagrations or conflicts City officials required citizens to muster their lamps and candles as an aid to defense or firefighting. At other times, it signaled power. 
when royalty arrived in a city, they were often ushered in with displays of torches along the streets and on rooftops or with bonfires. The church also marked its holy days with fire and used light extravagantly in its buildings. Of St. Mark's in Rome on Christmas Eve, one onlooker remarked, a man would think it all on fire. While such light reinforced the church's eminent place in society, candlelit processions through the streets and squares also imbued those times with a sense of solemnity and mystery.